Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Morning Liberty. Well, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Good Morning Liberty. My name is Nate Thurston. If you've seen Charlie Thompson, please let me know. I'll post my cell phone number in the show notes. But today I do have Mr. Trevor Krause, who is the story editor with Students for Liberty and the YouTube channel, one of my favorite, Learn Liberty. Trevor, how you doing today? Hey, Nate, I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be back with you. It's been a while. It's been a long time. Actually, it hasn't been that long. We just saw each other in, in Miami. And now... Yeah, Liberty Con, that's right. Now I guess you're back in Chicago, is that right? St. Louis. S- close. I mean, as far as distances away from like other cities, Chicago's one of the closer ones I could have picked. Don't you think? And I did. I did used to live in Chicago, so you weren't you weren't I, too far off. So close on that. And then I should have known. You mentioned St. Louis University earlier, and you know could have put all that together. All right, my bad. So listen, you just put out this really great video on the Learn Liberty channel. By the way, I'm going to make sure that there's a link to that in the show notes. And of course, we we talked about your troubled past last time you were on the <laughs> last time you were on the show, <laughs> but. Let everyone know what it is that you're, uh, what you're doing, and what you're, what you're up to today. Get me up to speed. Well, I have to thank you for some of the inspiration behind this video. Uh, it's called "Debunking the Eight of the Lies of Socialism," and uh, yeah, basically, I I come clean as a former Bernie bro, a former Bernie Sanders voter in the 2016 uh, Democratic primary. And uh, I kind of mentioned that in passing on my last appearance when I was talking to you before LibertyCon. And uh, you, I thought, very perceptively jumped on it and wanted to to pick a little further at that scab. And I thought to myself, okay, well, maybe I I should too. And so I, I came clean in this video and along with uh, one of our interviewees who... Uh, 
we we debunked some of the common lies of socialism as we see it lies that uh, bernie sanders tells for example um for example that scandinavia is this socialist paradise it's really closer to a free market economy uh the idea that cuba is poor just because of the us's embargo and then more broad topics like that the idea that societies can be centrally planned that's that's not true and uh in this video we go through eight eight lies that i once found compelling and that i no longer do and as as we talked about a couple a couple months ago um i had this transition i hadn't really thought too deeply about why i i transitioned you know it, it was a slow process over many many years and many books and many travels and and meeting a lot of people but uh in particular it was the angle of sports fandom that uh that i i thought we could talk about more in depth today we started talking about it in miami at liberty con um and with the world cup just kicking off uh yesterday the u.s plays here in a couple hours i think the connection between sports and liberty leaning or free market thought is is a is a topic that's really interesting and it helped my sports fandom helped bring me around is what i would say and so so how so tell me a little bit about that by the way you also sent me a hilarious video uh which i'm surprised i don't see more of but any okay we're gonna have to start taking some of the dumb leap of the week stuff or we start taking some of the political things we talk about you put that uh, sports center or Monday night football theme song behind it, something like that. It's amazing how well it works. And we really are just a, a couple different teams going at each other these days, what it feels like. So we can talk a little bit about that. How does, you know, you being a fan of sports in general, help you along, uh, to this free market point of view? Well, there are a couple of different ways. And, and the first that, that you touched on is that having watched espn debate shows for so much of my life i mean i i grew up watching uh pardon the interruption around the horn rome is burning first take uh, i would come home from school boom those are on the tv from three o'clock until six o'clock or whatever or seven o'clock when the cardinals game would come on so just the realization that these debate shows are created with no impetus other than to get people upset uh, was a big realization and i think once you start to apply that that the thinking of the 24-hour news cycle and the constant focus on pitting people against each other once you start applying that not just to espn but also to cnn and msnbc and fox news it was a real eye-opener i mean you can tell even i as a teenager could tell when the the sports hosts would have a you know there's not a big news story going on but they're very clearly just doing everything they can everything in their power to milk uh every ounce of content out of whatever drama they can they can hype up you know uh, 
quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers, whatever, says something innocuous, that gets blown into a whole controversy, right? I mean, they are so desperate, and it, it's entertaining in a lot of ways, but they're so desperate to to pit people against each other, to create drama, and the same thing happens uh, in the same way on uh, on politics channels. So that was that was a big realization. Um, but also there's so much from a market dynamics perspective that sports serves as a microcosm for. Um, I think about the Moneyball approach, and I don't know if if that's a book you've read or if you're familiar with the the concept. Love the movie, haven't read the book. So yeah, and and the movie I thought actually was a pretty good portrayal as those as those go uh, um, of the book. But the idea is the Oakland A's are this small market baseball team, and there's no salary cap in baseball. So the uh, A's with their tiny little budget are trying to compete with the New York Yankees who have a massive budget and the general manager is using some really mathematical, statistically rigorous formulas to beat the market, to find more efficient players uh, who will play well for uh, on a smaller budget. Um, and that's a very logical strand of thought and it's had this this huge impact in the sports world uh, sports teams everywhere are are now full in on the moneyball concept of of extracting every bit of efficiency from every dollar they spend uh, however you also have fans who get into this same kind of thinking and and there's a never-ending debate on online on twitter between analytics and what you might call old school sports fans uh who just say watch the game you know and i, I think there's a, a really interesting overlap you could probably draw a venn diagram pretty closely around the people who are all in on analytics and say this is the only way to to build a baseball team or a football team and the people who say wait a minute watch the game um, you can't just run everything based on computer models and statistics. So there's an interesting conversation here between the way that it's done in baseball, and maybe we talked a little bit about this in uh, in Miami. I know I talked to someone about this, but um, the way it's done in baseball and the way it's done in football. And I think this is a bit of a contradiction to where my mind would go when it comes to the free market and capitalism. With uh, baseball, um, you get these teams they get a ton of money they can spend as much money as they want on on things that's where you get your yankees and your oakland a's uh money ball imbalance uh, but when it comes to the nfl there's a salary cap and every team has a limit to what they can spend on their players so it evens it out a bit i happen as a sports fan to uh like the nfl the way they do it more than i like the mlb now that's because I'm watching people play a game. I think that's where the analogy kind of starts to break apart a bit. We are literally watching people play a game. So we can say life is a game. We can say, uh, you know, the, the economy is a game or whatever. But at the end of the day, this is an actual game and, <laughs> and life is not. 
So so it starts to break apart a little bit. But what are your what are your thoughts on on that right there? Well, the key thing is that in football, um, it's a voluntarily imposed salary cap. Like the the owners have collectively bargained and agreed that we're not going to spend more than whatever 150 million dollars on our roster. So that's something that they all agreed upon. And obviously, the analogy breaks down in the broader scheme of things because um, you do not have corporations in the United States, for example, all agreeing on a certain amount of product to sell, for example. And you don't have a, you know, it's not a voluntary arrangement for a a Walmart or or whoever to say we can only spend a, a a certain amount on innovation or whatever so uh but but yeah i I think baseball is is a is the better model because it has incentivized the teams like the small market teams like the oakland a's to really innovate knowing that if they if they want any chance to compete they have to uh, be very precise with every dollar that they spend one other thing while we're talking on sports, I, I always find it interesting. You can expand this out to the entertainment world as well, but uh, you being a former uh, Bernie supporter, maybe uh, socialist leanings, or at least you thought so. It's always interesting to me that people are okay with the amount of money that people playing sports make. Maybe sometimes I'll make a comparison. Oh, this person just got a $245 million contract and my mom who's a teacher makes x amount every year maybe they'll make that um but they they seem to be okay with it uh maybe taylor swift makes a ton of money when she uh plays shows if she's able to get the tickets into the hands of the people and people are okay with that now i don't know what her pay is versus the person who's going to be uh taking out the trash at the end of the show but i would imagine there's a large pay imbalance between the two of those people how is it that you think people are able to disconnect that? They see the value. Here's the problem. They see the value that that person brings. And maybe they see that they can't bring that value. And so they're okay with the the pay differential. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good thought. I, I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but yeah, I mean, it's just clearly obvious that you and I could not compete on an NFL football speak football for yourself field. trevor all right jeez <laughs> i will all right i'll see my I'll, skills <laughs> i will speak for myself i could not compete on an nfl football field or as 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 good a goalie as i was in in hockey i mean and i play i played a lot i really enjoyed it i played played club at uh at the university of missouri um i no i could not i could not compete at, at the NHL level. And that is so clearly obvious to each and every one of us. Whereas most jobs we see, it's conceivable that, oh, I, I could do that. You know, I could take out the trash. I could, I could hit the, I could hit the phones and cold call and sell season tickets, which I also did for a sports organization for a while. Um, but no, we, we, I don't know where the, the sort of, lionization of of athletes and entertainers comes from but it must it must be something innate within 
all of us that we it's like something we strive for something we know we could not attain but we see great beauty it's almost like a like a piece of artwork when you see a great catch it you know des bryant's catch in the 2014 <laughs> uh playoff game against green bay it's an unbelievable catch although that one was ruled one of the greatest catches catch. i've ever seen yeah by the way they but, had a yeah, carbon like, they had a carbon copy of that catch happened in the minnesota game yesterday and romo was calling the game and i mean literal same thing um the uh the guy came down with the ball took a couple steps when he fell to the ground the ball came out and they ruled it a catch and it was funny to hear romo's reaction to that he was like yeah i've heard i've seen i've seen plays like that before actually it was right there in the corner by the end zone i've seen that seen seen other people make great catches like that before as well anyway it was a catch everyone who's listening <laughs> i'm legally obligated to say that all right let's keep going my bad um yeah, I, I'm sure he had to bite his tongue a little bit. Listen, um, I threw my chair maintain across, neutrality. I threw my chair across the room in the bar whenever that happened. I've been traumatized since that moment, so anytime it comes up, I have to. I'm like about to jump out of my seat right now. Let's move on before I get too angry. <laughs> well, um, no, and, and another another angle of this that I I think is is interesting to pick at is that as baseball teams and primarily in baseball but it's happened across all sports as these teams get more and more analytically inclined um the product of the actual of the game itself a lot of people believe has suffered so baseball for example has just undergone a ton of rule changes that'll go into effect the next year uh to make the game more exciting because the thinking was there are too many strikeouts too many home runs and the ball is not in play as often and um i th i think there's in another interesting dynamic where you've got the the idea of a of a finite game which is like the houston astros won the world series this year and all these teams are competing very analytically and they're emphasizing walks and strikeouts in order to win a game or to win the world series in one season but it's coming at the cost of the bigger picture uh because the game itself is getting less interesting and so if that trend continues then all 30 teams are going to end up losing because their their fans are going to watch other sports and they're going to make less money at the box office so part of me wonders if the people who would who have this sort of gut level rejection of analytics who say watch watch the game you know you, you, you get your nose out of the out of the computer if those kinds of people who were called uh, you know they were made fun of incessantly by the by the the statistical types right this is a word i learned troglodytes it was is uh, if you go into sports twitter um i had to i had to look it up this is something that statistics quote unquote nerds might say to people who don't understand the analytics side don't mm -hmm. be a troglodyte like a, a caveman i got gotcha. it's kind of it's kind of the analogy okay and i had to okay. i had to learn that word because it was everywhere but i wonder if the people who say just watch the game you know um get 
take your take your nose out of your spreadsheet. There are so many things happening that that your spreadsheet can't account for. I wonder if those people had some intuitive sense of what could happen if the game went so far in the direction of statistics and analytics and if they subconsciously kind of predicted what what would happen to the infinite game that mm-hmm. is the all these the, the that is the detriment of the sport itself instead of just maximizing to win one game or one season yeah they probably you know i don't know if the troglodytes you could say caveman yeah if the cavemen i don't know if that was their intention but i do think that they're that they're right if you if you analyze so much that okay you find a way that you can buy yourself a a win by the the specific thing and the you know these specific analytics that's great at, at the end of the day if your goal is to win the games and get onto the world series but uh you also have a market and you have a fan base and they need to actually enjoy watching the games. And if they don't enjoy watching the games, then your wins become pointless. At the end of the day, you get someone like me who I just get bored out of my mind watching a baseball game. The, uh, the other thing is I would like them to do is I don't take about 80 games off the schedule. Just, just take them out of there. And I realize that's a big hit with the money, but I'd probably actually start watching baseball if they removed 80 games from the schedule. I watch football because if you lose one game, that's a big deal. Uh, I don't like the idea that games don't mean anything uh, until you get to the end of the season. And so that's always been a big issue with me with, uh, with, with baseball as well. And they might actually be destroying their market. And I like where you're going with this, that these big teams have become so analytical and they're able to throw so much money at it and they're able to almost uh, computer manufacture themselves a win, like an like a artificial intelligence themselves a win, that they end up destroying the market itself. And what they will find is that they need to go away, even though they're able to buy that, even though they're able to create uh, that little, I could use the word monopoly, but that's not the right word. Even though they're able to create that, that they find that in doing so, they destroy the whole business itself. And so that's almost like the market coming in and smacking down that ability to purchase that perfection. Am I getting that right? Yeah, I think so. And and you can see how, um, to, to bring this back to my evolution away from being a Bernie voter to <laughs> a very pro-market, pro-liberty, person and an agorist as i would say now um this 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 line of thinking you can see how sports can kind of be a microcosm and a, and a really good study of of society in general because like i said i think the you could there's a lot of overlap between the analytically inclined people who think that the market or think that society can in fact be put into a spreadsheet and perfectly predicted and you know you might call those the liberals or the lefties and people who want to sit back and and say there's something deeper here there's some sort of meaning that can't be calculated um can't be can't be just t- tinkered with and it's not a matter of updating 
this this cell or that on on your Excel spreadsheet. So I think you might have that on the the more conservative side, and um, I, I I just find it fascinating. Like I said, as a as a microcosm, because oh. I think there's a, there's an element of of correctness to both sides, but neither side has the full picture. I like that idea because you end up taking uh, just to kind of finish up on baseball here, but you, you kind of take the heart and soul out of it. You know, you take, you take that away. You take yeah. the meaning of uh, why it matters and you might as well just plug two things into a computer program and have them duke it out, you know, and the same way that if you're going to try and put our whole society on the spreadsheet or essentially plan the entire thing, you take the heart and soul out of it. You take the meaning out of what we're all doing every day. And I do think that we have a severe lack of meaning for a, a lot of people right now. I think that's actually one of our biggest problems as we've taken away with the meaning behind all of this. You know, I find great meaning in what I'm doing here every day. And I know you find a lot of meaning in what you're doing, but there's a lot of people who don't. And I, that's actually been one thing, I guess, on an aside that I've wanted to do is get corporations to do a better job explaining to their employees how they could find meaning in what it is that they're doing. You know, my uh, wife works as a financial analyst for a cancer research institute. Now she's sitting there looking at spreadsheets all day, uh, but she knows that she helps people that are spending the money, make sure that they still have enough money left over so they can keep trying to cure cancer. And so she's like, well, if I do a bad job at this and this business goes under, maybe we're going to cure cancer. But if I do a bad job right now, then we're not going to cure cancer. And so there's a lot of meaning in that job where you're messing with spreadsheets all day. I mean, heck, if you're serving at a restaurant, people need to eat. In fact, all of them need to eat. And so it's pretty important uh, if you're cooking somewhere as well. If you're farming, if you're doing anything, you can find meaning in every single job there is. So I don't know what... Do you think this whole meaning thing, am I, am I blowing that out of proportion? No, no, you said it well with the term heart and soul. That's a lot of, of what I see sports fans complaining about, especially in baseball. And uh, yeah, I can, I can totally see how, you know, your wife doing this hugely important work that could literally save lives. But if you get into the day to day of it, it's probably it probably has its ups and downs, but it can be pretty, pretty dreary and pretty dull. So mm -hmm. how do you get people to see the, the meaning uh, of what, of what they're doing? And in, in the sports world, I actually think there's a way to look at it where the analytics, what, what they actually prove more often than not is how unpredictable, how random sports really can be and so having studied sports analytics i actually find more reason to watch games because i know that it's not just the favorite that's going to win every game i know that there's a degree of luck degree of randomness and and it's hard to predict so that's the the sort of next step that i i wish uh the the the, the stats nerds if you, if you want to call them that would find that there, you can predict things and you can build models up to a certain point, but there's also this element of human unpredictability. Um, like, I mean, with, with COVID models, let's say, and the, you know, the statistical models that predicted such and such 
the numbers of people would die or would get the disease. That's that's all valuable in its place, but there's also an element when we're dealing with human beings, uh, free human beings, um, that you can't say exactly what'll happen because there's so much, you know, it, it's not a human action is not a is not a, a, a science in the sense that the law of gravity is a science or that two times two is four is always predictable and always a science. And that's another thing that you just learn constantly as a sports fan is how unpredictable our world really is and how, how you can get into trouble if you try to predict it with too much certainty, or if you think your predictions are more than predictions are in fact telling the future. That's something that we could have learned a lot from over the last couple of years, for sure. And you know what, what it would take is just a little bit of humility, uh, just saying, okay, this is what this data model is saying, but uh, you know what I can't take into account? Uh, transmissibility, moral hazard. Yeah. Uh, I can't take, you know, I can't tell you exactly how these things are going to change. Uh, plus, we don't have all the information. Like, I mean, at the time that they're making those models, two million people are going to die. They knew almost nothing at that at that point in time and uh and you weren't allowed to question things like that so a little bit of humility and i guess in the sports world that would be great too you look at the analytics but you're still dealing with human pieces that are doing that and uh maybe the person had a bad day maybe they didn't sleep perfectly last night and yep. so you think you're going to get this number out of them but uh you know they woke up a little, little bit of a crick in their neck when they got up and they can't turn the same way that they normally can and there you go the numbers are the numbers are all messed up. Now, on the average, over uh, 180 games, or however many games it is, so about about 8,094 is what it feels like to me, uh, you might get that <laughs> average number. But you can't predict a specific day, just like you can't in and, our economy either. And in some sense, the average number is irrelevant, because I don't care what happens on game number 8,092 <laughs> when my quarterback, Tony Romo, is 94 years old and is, you know, in, in the nursing home. Yeah. I care about what's going to happen today. And in the same way, I don't care, you know, what the, it's, it's a good, it's a good way to inform. Like I, I, you can see, you can see both sides of it where people who would ignore the data entirely, they would miss out on a crucially important part of the picture, which is that, for example, this, disease is new and it's spreading rapidly and it's something we should care about and, and think about a lot. You wouldn't get that sense if you totally ignored the statistical computer models or or even with climate change. There's definitely something here worth paying attention to. But we don't care what the computer models predict on on the iter on the 9000th iteration. We're here on this planet Today, we, we're dealing with uncertainty and unpredictability, and uh, we we need to have the humility to under, understand that our, our predictions aren't going to be perfect. And maybe that's going to come from the from society uh, humbling the people that are that are doing that. That might be the only way to get that uh, to work out. You know, you mentioned some of those data sets there. I think at the beginning of the COVID, they were saying that it was a 5% mortality rate was some of the first numbers that came out were 5%. And 
Geez, you know, this was in early 2020. Charlie and I had not gotten our honorary Twitter doctorate uh, that everyone else got that <laughs> year. Uh, but even at that point, we're like, you know, their statistical sample are all people who were sick enough to go to the hospital and they don't know yep. how many other people have this virus at all. So whatever number they're throwing us, uh, it's from the people that were sick enough to go to the hospital, not all the ones that have no idea whether or not they have it or just aren't very sick at all. They think they have a normal cold. So this 5%, this is BS, you know? And the same thing goes with all the climate data. I got into it again with someone on Twitter yesterday. They're talking about, oh, I love the record-breaking temperatures. Drives me nuts, record-breaking temperatures. You know, we got about since 1880, we've got fairly decent temperature data, and we got about 4.5 billion years of non-accurate temperature data that we don't have. So drives me nuts every time someone says that. And, and so to and so to put that on a football field, like we the we have um, enough data for one inch of the hundred yard football field. Yeah, that represents the the Earth's lifespan, right? Mm-hmm. But probably not even an inch. That might be a yeah, little well, bit too much, <laughs> you know. Uh, so that. It's it is it does take people being humble. It takes everyone realizing that we don't know everything. And uh, I don't know if when you take away the aspect of control, those people aren't as likely to come out and say that they know everything. Or I don't know if people push back on those people if they're uh, going to start admitting that they don't know everything. Um, what what do you think the I don't know what do you think the step forward is for Let's just talk about this data analytics this works people into uh socialism i wanted to ask you a little bit about scandinavian socialism before we go also because that's been one of my favorite lies that's been debunked over and over and <laughs> over and over again and you'll still have someone like bernie go up there and say oh we don't want uh, we want denmark or we want sweden we whatever i'm just going to jump into that question now I know that you talked about this in the video, and I'm going to put the link in the show notes for everyone. Have you heard any of the democratic socialists or just straight up socialists these days? Uh, have they thrown out any economic policies that resemble the Scandinavian economic policies? Or do they just want to get the results of the Scandinavian economic policies? Yeah, I think they, they want to, they want to get the results and they, look at these countries which are really well developed and uh lead the world in a lot of stand you know standard of living and and things like that and i mean they're beautiful people there are generally prosperous and safe um they so yeah i, I think both sides would want to claim those countries for for their cause and a lot a lot of people just think that because the high tax rates in Scandinavia are in fact so high that that's an example of a of a country that's socialist or where government is big and helpful and that's what what the Bernie Sanders wing will tell you um but that's not the full picture and there's there are other factors as Juan Carlos Hidalgo he was our, our our expert in this video debunking the eight lies of socialism check it out on learn liberty it'll be in the show notes um he uh 
he went through some other factors like openness to trade, the stability of currency, regulations that suggest that actually government isn't as intrusive in the Scandinavian countries as some people who just look at tax rates might claim. Uh, those countries typically on the, he cited the Fraser, the Fraser Institute, which does an economic freedom report. And this is another metric. And as we've been talking about, this is not some uh, perfect statistical model. There are going to be flaws. It's, it's really more of an estimate, but it suggests that other factors that would contribute to liberty or freedom are actually pretty high in the Scandinavian countries. Um, and yet, yeah, this lie is is really pervasive. Uh, but in our video, we even included a clip of the, the president of Denmark saying, listen, a lot of people want to call us socialist. We are a market economy. Um, and you could, you know, I, I know people from Scandinavia and they probably would say government is too big there, but it's not the, it's not the full picture. Yeah. One of the big, you know, they do have the high, they do have the high income taxes, but one of the biggest things is what is it? Their top bracket, it tops out somewhere in what we would call middle class. And then if you are in the really wealthy, um, they don't have another, this, this top 1% top 10th of 1% type tax. They don't have this environment of hatred of rich people that a lot of people That's have. That's the biggest thing. Like, okay, they do have a high top tax bracket, but they don't have an even higher, even tippy topper tax bracket, like what uh, AOC might want. They, they just yep. say, okay, if you're over this, you're going to make that. But if you're super rich, we're not going to punish you for it. And I think that's where we've really gone wrong is the, the AOC and Bernie, they think that we're going to get Denmark with a Venezuelan type hatred for rich people. And we're going to come out with whatever their welfare state is in Denmark. And I don't see it happening. And, and speaking about Scan Scandinavia specifically, um, I think it goes even deeper than just policy or government. I mean, the traits that you might as associate with like a, a socialist country brotherhood of man type thing, that that is kind of a misnomer. Um, Scandin Scandinavians are like, there was a joke, I played hockey with a with a guy from Sweden and and when covid started he he told a joke like uh you know in, in Sweden they they're making us st stand 6 feet apart from each other why why so close all of a sudden <laughs> the joke being that that Swedes are very kind of standoffish and uh are skeptical of other people i think would be the insinuation um they're not very emotional uh, kind of very logic driven and and independent fiercely so in a lot of cases so um even on the cultural level there's not i don't find a lot of evidence for this idea that the scandinavian countries are a socialist utopia i think a lot of most of what good comes from there and remember sweden was the one country that didn't impose any covid restrictions or the fewest uh i think what good comes from there is like the the president of denmark himself said comes from the market economy and the individuality of the people there mm -hmm. 
You also have to take into account the population of those countries versus the population of ours. And uh, I actually think it. I think talking about those countries, uh, to me, makes more of a case for our federalist system uh, that if you want to do any of these things, Bernie or AOC, whoever you are, uh, sure, not in Tennessee, please don't don't do that. But if you <laughs> want to do any of these things, sure, take a take a state. Let's uh, let's take Virginia. And if they want to, to do this, then they can do it. Or we, if you want to take Vermont and they want to do it, then that's okay. See if it works on that level. But don't tell me that what works for 10 million people is going to work for 350 million people with all very, very different, diverse backgrounds and that you're going to be able to centrally plan that entire thing when I haven't seen them do a good job at darn near anything yet. So anyway, part, parting thoughts on those ideas, Trevor. Yeah. Uh, the idea of, yeah, like I said, centrally planned economies, we had the example of uh, just on an individual level, if everyone could envision themselves atop a tall building, you know, in New York City or Chicago, and just imagine all the the people hustling and bustling all around uh, in the city below, try to come up with a plan like for even the next 20 minutes, let alone the next day or the next month or the next 50 years for all those people that satisfies, that satisfies everyone. What you're probably going to come up with your best, your best case scenario is like the least bad option or some kind of compromise that doesn't upset anybody, but doesn't really please anybody either. And with, with Christmas coming up, uh, I've got the idea for a blog post on our on our Learn Liberty blog. Have you ever played the game White Elephant or Rob yes. Your Neighbor? Yeah. Okay, you do that. You do that at your Christmas, We've your done family it before, Christmas. Yeah. So when you play this game, everyone brings a gift, right? And they throw a gift in, in the in the middle of the table, and then you draw numbers out of a hat, and uh, each person gets to select a gift, and then the next person can either steal that gift or select a new one from the pile, right? Um, well, when you <laughs> when you buy gifts for this game, you do so with no one person in mind, right? You just do what, oh, what is a pretty good average middle-of-the-road gift, you know, and maybe you find someone who really wants what you bring. Last year, I got a pack of golf balls from Costco, and that was a pretty good gift for me. But it's not one that I would have bought for myself, because while it was a good gift for me, it wasn't the perfect thing. I could use new golf balls. You know, I put them, believe me, I put them to use fast <laughs> in a lot of lakes over the over the Midwest. I was going to ask if you had um, any of them left over. No, uh, I think I got three <laughs> of them left. But um, no, everyone is sort of bringing a middle of the road gift that the average person is going to like. And uh, when you try to going back to our sports discussion when you try to fit your vision around an average person you're you're th th that's not any individual that's not a person who actually exists that's a statistical average so if you try to please a group of 20 people by choosing a very middle of the road gift you're not actually going to please anybody and that's the i think that's the fallacy of a centrally planned economy as we outlined as, as we outlined in that video that's a really great way to explain that i could end up stealing it but i will give you credit later on in the podcast for it 
I really like that. It reminds me of, uh, you know, Milton Friedman's four different ways, you know, people spend money uh, when you're, you spend it on someone else, someone else spend it on someone else, all that stuff. So that's a really good idea. Now I'm trying to picture the quality of gifts that are there uh, when you're doing uh, w- the white elephant game versus if everyone just bought something for a specific yeah, person, it's like, totally it's different. Like, oh, candles, candles, <laughs> or, uh, I don't know. In my, in my case, it was golf balls or like a gift card for Amazon. It's all pretty generic. And I think that's kind of what happens with on, on a societal scale we, we get the big publicly funded things like libraries and parks and hospitals and schools. And don't get me wrong. I love all those things, but, um, they're probably just middle of the road examples of things that people are generally going to like, but maybe not is maybe not, maybe wouldn't buy for themselves. Mm-hmm. I like it. Maybe they would though. Maybe they would. All right, Trevor, we got to go. I want to have you. I had this other massive topic that I want to talk about, but I have another interview coming up here in a bit that I'll have to jump off to. I want to talk next time about Sam Bankman-Fried, FTX, and how altruism just costs people billions of dollars. And I would, Ooh, that's a fun one. would like to talk about that. I'm working on an article on that right now because his whole goal was to only go out there and make money so he could give it away. And he ended up stealing a bunch effective of money. Effective altruism, right? Just yep. effective al- altruism. And it turns out uh, he wasn't quite as careful with the money as he should have been, if you can imagine such a thing. And so I think that would be a really <laughs> fun topic of conversation. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get that one scheduled because I think that would be fun to talk about. But uh, Trevor, tell everyone where they can go once again. And I guess you could just say show notes. But while they're listening, tell them what they can see in all these different places. Well, check out uh, Students for Liberty. Uh, we're the world's biggest pro-liberty organization, or at least the the biggest one focused on college students. Uh, I think we do a lot of really good things in the world. And uh, I I come into play with the Learn Liberty YouTube channel. I'm the scriptwriter there, and uh, our Learn Liberty blog. So don't don't you can't steal my idea until I publish it about right. the right. the rob your the rob your neighbor game. I'm going to work on that blog post this week. I will wait, um, and I promise I will credit you every every time. In fact, if I use it, I have to post a link to your blog. <laughs> that would <laughs> when I do it. That would be great. Uh, but yeah, learn learn liberty on YouTube and. Uh, and the blog and um check it out we uh we're we've got two videos coming out with professor anthony davies whom i know you're a big fan of the Mm -hmm. the the web's most searched economics questions answered by professor davies things like what is economics and uh really basic stuff that he had a great take on and uh affordable the the affordable housing crisis and zoning and gentrification is another video we've got where we went really hard on nimbys not in my backyard people (laughs) so those will be coming out soon all right trevor that sounds great uh thank you so much for your time today and we'll talk to you again soon my pleasure nate thank you